0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do.
1: We start off the new year with an episode on a controversial topic, social media. In this episode, we were joined by Dr. Sean Langenfeld. Dr. Langenfeld is a colorectal surgeon at the University of Nebraska and has spent a long time doing research and thinking about social media and surgery. We talk about the concept of professionalism on social media, the infamous med bikini incident, and online reputation management. Dr. Langenfeld, thank you very much for joining us on Cold Steel today. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on. Can you start by just telling us a bit about uh, where you grew up and uh, where you did your training?
2: Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I went to college and medical school at St. Louis University in St. Louis, did my surgical training at the University of Kansas, which is in Wichita, and then went to Houston, uh University of Texas in Houston for my colorectal training. So, after 15 years of being away, I sort of ran right back home to Omaha as fast as I could.
0: Please excuse my my ignorance, but is is Omaha where Warren Buffett is? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. it's uh, he's made a lot of people in this town very wealthy,
2: and wow. so that means there's been a lot
1: of people to fund the
2: arts and 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 uh, entertainment and all those types of things, and to uh, sort of drive innovation. It's
1: a great town. Why did you end up going into colorectal surgery? Uh, initially, if if you can share that with our listeners.
2: Well, I think, you know, like a lot of people, I sort of evolved into it during training. At first, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I think the surgeries are very cool, um, which I'm sure you guys would agree with, you know, as far as the complexity of some of the laparoscopic and robotic things that we do. I think as a specialty and as a community, it's very evidence-based. There's not as much surgical dogma as I've seen in some of the other specialties, The people I meet have always been fantastic. But, you know, I think I knew I wanted to take out cancer for a living. At first, I thought I wanted to do thoracic surgery, and then I felt that it seemed like people were always saying no to the patients in clinic. And, you know, I feel like even the world's greatest Whipple surgeon still kind of has a losing record, if that makes sense. You know, even the disease is just too aggressive. But the thing about colon cancer and rectal cancer, I that the quality of your surgeon. The quality of your surgery dictates whether you live or die. And I kind of liked that control um, over the outcomes, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I'm right on board with you uh, in that front. Uh, doing my colorectal fellowship in Vancouver, Doctor Ball might have a thing or two to say about uh, about whipples, but we we won't go down that uh,
0: particular <laughs> rabbit hole. Come on, we cure everybody. <laughs> what are you guys talking about?
2: Well, no, I think the complexity of those operations is profound, and I actually have a great deal of respect, especially for my own surgical oncology colleagues here in Nebraska. But you just have to have a thick skin because I know you're dealing with, you know, a very tiny margin, and it's very respectful. But I kind of liked having. I guess more wins in my belt, but, uh, but you're right. You know, it, it, you can make a difference doing about anything in surgery. So it's just my preference.
1: Absolutely. So Dr. Langefeld, we really uh, reached out to you to have you come on the podcast uh, mainly uh, to talk about something that I think everybody thinks about, but I don't think anyone has really delved into, to the same extent that you have, which is social media and how social media impacts surgeons and, and how so- surgeons sort of interact with social media. So I wanted to just start off by asking you how you got interested in the topic because you were writing papers and and doing research on this kind of very, very early on in in the sort of the academic interest, uh, sort of the, the, the world academic interest in social media in terms of that history. So what, what interested you in, in the topic of social media?
2: Well, it's a very, it's a fascinating. Uh, thing, very uncontrollable beast. And I think that I did get involved kind of early, which led to a lot of opportunities for me professionally. But the way that it started was I was new in practice and I had a patient, I'd taken out of cancer in him and he gave me this, you know, this thank you note and it said I see from your Facebook page that you have two beautiful daughters perhaps you'd like to buy them a book here's a gift card to Barnes & Noble and while it certainly was a noble uh, gesture I, I was like how the heck does he know that I have two daughters my Facebook profile is private so I went on there with somebody else's account found out sure enough there's two pictures of my daughters on there and I was kind of spooked out by that level of access you know that people had and you know to physicians and And what I thought I identified there was sort of an unintentional overlap between people's personal and professional lives that didn't used to be there before. So I wanted to kind of find out what the general public could see. And then I just wanted to watch this develop over time because you could see, or at least in the beginning, you could really identify some trends to how this was going to become a bigger and bigger player in the way patients and physicians interact, so...
1: You, you you wrote a series of really, uh, I think, important papers in sort of social media and, and surgery. And two of them I, I think I'd like to focus on uh, were uh, kind of back-to-back papers that looked at uh, the assessment of social media use by first residents, and then you looked at attending surgeons. Can you talk to us about what uh, led you to do those studies and your methods and uh, and, and sort of the results you found?
2: Sure. Yeah. So yeah, those are probably the first, those are first two that I wrote and they were both when I was an associate PD for our residency and, and they were presented at the APDS annual meetings as a part of that process. But, um, you know, the purpose of the study kind of stemmed from the same thing I talked about before. Is I, I wanted to find out how many residents were on Facebook and then what sort of content was viewable by the general public. Because at that point it wasn't, you know, the level of literacy within social media was not as high. People really felt that what they were saying was just being shouted into a small room and really they were, you know, booming it across the entire internet. And, and I wanted to use that to educate residents, probably in the form of standardized curricula and just basically show how little privacy they really had and how to avoid common pitfalls. And so Basically, once we did that and we found the results of that, we decided to kind of extend that to look at faculty because I, I thought otherwise you're kind of pointing the finger and wagging a finger. I wanted to look at our own behavior, if that makes sense. But what we did is, you know, going back, I believe this is about 2013, uh, maybe slightly earlier than that. We went online and we got IRB approval for all these things. This is all publicly available information. There's no snooping around here. We just went to websites and got rosters. We used... um our own Facebook accounts to kind of search these accounts and content and find out only what was viewed by the general public. I didn't really want to know what they were saying behind closed doors, but just kind of what they said that a patient could stumble upon. What we found was about 12% of residents and about 5% of faculty had what we considered to be clearly unprofessional behavior. These are things like, you know, HIPAA violations, racist jokes, homophobic jokes some misogynistic behavior inappropriate um you know uh, drug use people you know re- referencing smoking marijuana and things like that things you just probably don't want a patient to see um interestingly among the faculty we found that men had a complete monopoly on the unprofessional behavior uh versus within the residents is a little bit more evenly split um but you know these i use these as kind of talking points for years this is those papers kind of sprung me towards talking about the concept of professionalism within social media and it's a very much a gray zone how to define professionalism and so i discussed kind of at all these talks inherent subjectivity of that i know it's kind of a moving target that can harm people you know so all the research and all the talks i gave never really meant to police behavior or tell people what they can or can't do, or weaponize professionalism, it's just kind of saying, Hey, are you do you know what you're putting out there? Do you appreciate it's not truly private? And do you understand the consequences that can occur for missteps? You know, and that and that was sort of the the findings and I guess the message from those studies.
0: You know, I think I think that's very eloquently stated, and I, I I wonder a lot about you know your comments in terms of the, the gray of of what's defined as professionalism and and unprofessional, and of course. You know, there's been some pretty high profile a couple of manuscripts that have walked been walked back a little bit recently. Oh yeah. With regard, yeah, to, to defining <laughs> that. And and we'll we'll link those to the podcast uh um, you know, so everyone can have a look at them. But what what is your sense of a professional and unprofessional beyond some of the really obvious low-hanging fruit? Like if you if you walk into the political side of things and you support I don't know Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Uh, you know, in your most recent election, does that is that become unprofessional, or, or you know, where does that actually land?
2: Well, the, the thing about that that's fascinating is you're really like what's fair and what you're allowed to say it doesn't really matter. It's all the court of public opinion, and so there's nothing unprofessional, I, in, in inherently about supporting a political candidate, but certainly you're drawing yourself into hot water. So you just have to understand that in advance and know kind of who you are and who you represent when you do so um, if, if that makes sense so if somebody is hanging their own shingle out that's fine but if they're uh, they're representative of the faculty that they work for or the institution that they work for they have to realize that if they make comments online it's not going to say you know Sean Langenfeld blank 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 did this horrible mm-hmm. thing online it's going to say Nebraska medicine surgeon did this horrible thing online <laughs> <laughs> you know and so yeah. my institution is very effective so, but the papers you talk about those are very important because this. I was kind of pulled into this secondarily, but the, the concept of it was like hashtag meg bikini was how it started. That's right. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about this because this is something I, I kind of watched it unfold. And if I and if my whole if my career or at least my social media life wasn't in jeopardy, it would have been fascinating. But I, to be honest, it made me very nervous because they had this. You know, it was a poorly designed study from the Journal of Vascular Surgery, assessing unprofessional behavior among fellows, and and whether it was true or not, because the the reality doesn't matter, it's just perception, but the perception was that they were targeting women and the LGBTQ plus community, and I have to admit, when I was reading it, I kind of got the same sense, but, you know, but I don't know their intention, but there was a huge Twitter outcry, and the worldwide movement, this is all over, you know, it, it was viral, the paper got retracted, and it was a big deal, uh, the, the sad discovery that I made, though, as I was reading the article, was that they kind of cited me as their muse, if that makes sense. And so they, they said, well, we'll use Langenfeld's paper to define professionalism. And, and so, you know, you know, immediately without really doing the research, people go, well, Langenfeld must have had similar targets, you know. But, you know, I never really targeted these people. If anything, we did the opposite. You know, they, we were calling out racist behavior, misogynistic behavior, homophobic behavior. We weren't, you know and reinforcing it. And so, you know, as an example, they're like, Oh, inappropriate Halloween costumes. You're saying I can't wear a bikini for Halloween. I was like, no, people were dressed up in blackface, uh, as Halloween costumes. You know what I mean? That you know, and there was a lot of content derogatory towards women, uh, it, misogynistic jokes. And, and the other thing is people said, well, you know, they're snooping around people's profiles and creating fake accounts to invade people's privacy. And I have to admit, I, I didn't really agree with the public on that because I don't know how they designed their study, but for us, we just—you can just use a regular Facebook profile mm-hmm. and type in the name of a person, and if it's available to the general public, there's no privacy there, and there's no invasion of privacy, and especially if you do it with the intent of making sure people understand what's viewable. So, I mean, I basically um, I was targeted as a result of that. I don't think people really take the time to research the topic and fact check. You know, they just sort of get angry. And so what I did was I put a statement out online, you know, because I wanted to address this. I said, listen, your concerns are valid. All that I ask is that you read my studies, read my studies and then decide if I'm truly as horrible as you say I am, because the studies really don't represent what you're saying they do. And people are, some people are kind of almost intentionally distorting it to make it fit the narrative, which drove me nuts. And so most people kind of took that and agreed with it. You know, keeping in mind that, that the studies that I've done, I'm not trying to brag, but you know, they've been cited widely. Uh, they've been used as a for as a you know basis for for you know, society guidelines and curricula. So it's not like this new thing that came out this year. they've been around since twenty fourteen. You know, but you can't make everybody happy. And I certainly had some people banging the drum for quite some time that I was a horrible person and that my paper should be retracted. And eventually it just sort of died out, which I think is important for anybody that is catches themselves in a similar dilemma Mm -hmm. is you have to remember that the attention span of these people, when they get really angry and irrational is relatively short, you know what I mean? And so rather than, engage with the people that were kind of ignoring the facts and, and calling me horrible names and fighting with them. I just sort of said my version and then let it go. And I think that was a better way to handle it, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I I, I totally agree. You know, Amir and I watching from a distance, it, it seemed like you handled that very elegantly. And I we, we did wonder what was going on, you know, on, on the inside of your brain because it certainly couldn't have been easy. You know, the, the other question that, I, that comes to mind out of the gate is, it is sort of surrounds insight. Um, in 2020, when you when you classify or you look at, you know, un, quote-unquote, unprofessional, you know, social media behavior, um, and again, you can pick the low-hanging fruit if, if you want, but what percentage of surgeons and trainees do you think actually have insight into the fact that they're doing that? And I also wonder if it's changed between your work back in 2012, 2013, and, and 2020.
2: Yeah. Oh, I definitely think it's changed. I think that, I don't know what the correct correct word is, but maybe like the social media literacy, you know what I mean, of of people has gone up dramatically. You know, when I was doing these talks, we're having entire symposiums where we're like, here's how you tweet and here's how you create a Facebook account, you know, and all this stuff. I presumably targeted at gray hairs who were going to get into social media, but the, you know, the reality is people understand it much better now. And they also have kind of made this measured choice. They say, well, I understand that I'll catch fire for this, but this issue is important enough to me that I want to tweet about it or, or support whatever cause. And I'm fully supportive of that, if that makes sense. And so I think the insight level has gone up. I also think that um, social media is such a distorted place and surgeons are no different than any other consumer. We're not above anything. And so we're also maybe not self-aware in that regard. You know, there's a lot of cannibalism going on where we hate one thing, but then when we're sort of tested or countered, we sort of become the thing that we hate. And that's one of the reasons I'll be honest with you guys, even though I clearly spent a lot of time on social media, I have sort of love hate relationship with it because it, it's so, re- it reduces people so much. It just reduces the world to black and white. You know, it, uh, you either with somebody or against them, If you have a disagreement, you're a horrible person. It's a really very polarizing environment, this place. And, you know, the concept of like, you know, defining a group by the worst member of the group or defining a person by the worst action that they've ever done rather than by whatever their body of work is over time is a really damaging way to go about life and, you know i think that something that we could do in a, i'm getting a little bit on the soapbox here guys so paul you just cut me off but you know with the if we would just start giving each other the benefit of the doubt in social media it would be a much better place to hang out as professionals and as in our own personal lives
1: yeah as someone who who uses twitter a lot uh, i totally agree with you and and it you know what what we're experiencing as physicians i think on social media is is uh something that uh, is maybe a a unique facet but but part of a larger i think discussion about social media that's going on throughout our society and our culture and um, it's it is sobering to think about what it might be doing to the way that we we interact with each other i wanted to just go back for a second to that whole concept of professionalism and.
2: Oh, sure. You know, yeah, sorry. No, 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 something.
1: no, no, not at all. I mean, there's so much. There's so much to unpack with you. Um, and, and to talk with you about. But one of the things that's always kind of struck me is that, you know, somehow people feel like, um, that, that suddenly now is, is the first time that people are trying to police or, or at least have some sort of insight or self-regulation into terms of their public. Um perception, but you know like if you were a surgeon in a small town no matter what what time period you were from you know before Facebook or Twitter or any of these social media platforms there was a sense uh, and uh and you correct me if I'm wrong but my you know there I think there still was a sense that like you know if if everybody can recognize you at the grocery store what you do from a public persona perspective does matter and and I wonder do you think that somehow social media is different? I mean, clearly it is different in terms of the reach, but do you think somehow there's this sort of this um, dual, double speak or or dual think when it comes to thinking about how we regulate our our, uh, professional identities on social media versus, you know, what people had to do if they were in a small town where everyone knew them um, with their uh, public persona?
2: Well, the thing about that type of environment is it was proportional. You know, you knew your audience. You knew who you would see at the grocery store, who would see you doing whatever you plan to do that day. Um, The problem with the internet is it's very unpredictable. And so, you know, you could go online and say something stupid and nobody knows, right? Uh, Let's say you got, you know, 20 followers or something. Or that day, it just turns out that the social media gods were exceptionally hungry, there was nothing else outraging them currently, and they capture that, and then it becomes viral, and their reaction is very disproportionate and unpredictable. And that's just a very different beast than what people dealt with in the past, you know what I mean? A similar concept is, you know, the permanence of it. And so if you, in the old days, if you said something stupid, and, and I think we... All three of us have heard our old bosses say some really stupid things at least when I was in training I things I would never repeat you know maybe it was the era but the um, the reality is they said it and it was over and maybe I could recall it maybe I couldn't but social media has permanence you know you put something out there and it's there forever and so let's say in 2012 I said something stupid and then 2020, I get into a, you know, like a lawsuit, let's just say I get sued. The first thing the lawyer is going to do is scour social media and they're going to find anything that can incriminate me or make me look like a horrible person or make me look like an alcoholic, you know? And so, you know, a perfect example of that, you know, I I think about that because when I was in training, I was told you should never really be, you know, pictured, don't let them take a picture of you holding a beer is what they used to say. For the newspaper, or for whatever. The problem with it now is if you do it now, the, the example I gave is there's this, this residency. They did this thing called Sunday Funday where they all went to the uh, uh, brewery and it was all for charity. It was like this great idea and it was helping wellness and everybody's in a good mood. They're all smiling and holding beers and drinking together. The problem is we know all those people had surgeries on Monday the next day. If they have a bad outcome, all this stuff is date and time stamped. And so the lawyer will be like, well, I see that, you know, from your Facebook profile, you had a few drinks the night before. Dr. Langefeld, how'd you feel that morning? And this is not fantasy. This has happened and been documented on multiple occasions. This is what the lawyers do and reporters do. And so it's just a very different environment because of how unpredictable and how powerful social media is and how quickly things can disseminate. It's just that the rules aren't as clearly understood. And so to me, that is a big difference. But no, you're, you're not wrong. People have always had to manage their, I guess, their their pr- public profile. Um, if anything, we almost have more control over it now. It's almost like the you know, Instagram filters. You can make your life look beautiful online compared to real life by picking and choosing what you share and all these different things. And so if anything, uh, it's allowing the more manipulative component of our groups to, 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 have an edge, but it is very different than it was in the past because of that power.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree, agree with you, but you know, I, I do want to push back a little bit on this, the idea that we're more socially literate. I, I, or, or social media literate, if, if that's, if I can use your term, Um, because my sense is that more than ever, people sort of justify any, anything that they put out online on social media is sort of like, well, this is, I'm a human being and I deserve to be treated as such. And I'm not perfect. And, you know, I think that was a big thing that kind of came out during that whole, uh, you know, Medjikini controversy is that people said, well, you know, I, I should just be treated as a human being for who I am, I guess. Do do we uh, should we expect physicians and surgeons to maintain a certain you know standard or a certain uh, level of professionalism more than than other people? I guess in some ways that's what this question fundamentally kind of gets yeah, I, to. Yeah, I
2: think I understand what you're saying. I would say just to answer, yeah, you're not incorrect. Like that makes sense to me. Um, I think that there's a lot of positive things that come out of the people that stand up and say that because they're redefining professional and they're kind of saying, you know, the conventional image of what's professional is not modern and is probably skewed towards, you know, white males. And so redefining a professionalism is a good idea, right? But I also agree with you that you can't just slap that tag on everything and say, you're allowed to act however you want. People still have to be you know, there's some common sense professionalism that has to exist when you are a public figure. You know, if you are on your own and you've got a shingle out, this is Dr. Langenfeld, and I'm just representing myself and I can do whatever I want and I can be as polarizing as I want, etc. But if I have entered an agreement with a university or I'm, you know, there's an attending surgeon who's agreed to, to mentor me and allow me to see his patients who came to see him. And I'm just constantly making his patients feel uncomfortable because it's important to me for my self-expression. And I can't think of a great example of what that looks like, but, you know, it could be anything that you think is going to upset, you know, your patient population. And and you say, it's about me. You have to accommodate me and you have to make me feel good. Well, it's not about you. It's about the patient, you know? So for me, I, I definitely think the focus should still be on, you know, patient comfort and, 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 you know, representing your institution well, because when you screw up, it's not just you going down. There's a lot of collateral damage. And I think that as people mature, they see that. And I think that those messages are not black and white opposite of each other. <laughs> I think that's the whole point. of Social media make, makes it sound like if I, I say that, that means I clearly don't want women to wear bikinis or something. And I'm like, no, it's not it's not the same thing. It, there's nuance to it.
1: Yeah, that, that nuance is just – that's the real – a tricky part about social media is that it just it's so hard to convey any nuance uh in a you know 280 character tweet uh, and you know and on those lines um you know i know you're you're on twitter and you're very uh actively involved in the the ascrs uh, facebook group yes yeah yeah do, do you how do you treat those different social media platforms do you kind of think of them differently let's say twitter facebook i don't know if you're on reddit or, or use tiktok or not but do you, do you think of those social media platforms uh differently or or the same and and how do, do. how do how do, how do those uh how does kind of the platform interact with the way you behave on it
2: well i think it there's there's a lot of different i guess rules to these platforms they're different from each other but The reality is privacy is equally unguaranteed or not guaranteed across all of them. So, you know, I think the difference is the audience. And so if you're in a closed Facebook group, and I do moderate and I did create that ASUS Facebook group, it's great for in-depth discussion. Among like a selected group of professionals with common interests and common skill sets. So it's a great place to discuss difficult cases, great place to learn new surgical techniques and learn it from somebody that you trust rather than whoever just happens to have a YouTube account, right? So those closed Facebook groups are fantastic for that. And the audience is other professionals. With Twitter, uh, it's great if you want to disseminate information in a big, indiscriminate manner to reach a big audience a big wide audience but it's also a great place to get information that you didn't know you needed you know what I mean so I can go on there and I didn't know there was a new article about antibiotics and appendicitis and the uh, New England Journal of Medicine until I found out yesterday on Twitter you know and so the uh, Dr. Flum study that just somehow had missed and so it's a great way to find things you weren't looking for it's a great way to, fo- to follow you know podiums and abstracts and and, of course, I go there to argue with strangers a bunch, uh, which I don't know why I keep doing it. But, the, you know, but the, the reality is that's great. But some of the other platforms um, that are kind of like specific for physicians, you know, like um, the example that I thought of was the ACS communities sort of created for us to have these conversations. There's a version of that for ASCRS. There's Doximity. The problem with those different platforms are sort of designed for our use is that there has to be an intentional choice to go there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have to like find my login and password, go to Doximity and, and decided what I want to look at. And the difference is with Facebook and Twitter is that utilization is already so high. There's such a high percentage of surgeons already on there. Looking at whatever, you know, their family's baby pictures or, you know, sports, and then they stumble upon a surgical conversation. And so utilization is going to remain very high for those types of platforms, while some of these other intentional platforms are kind of ghost towns right now, to be honest. And so the rules are different, but I guess the one kind of universal truth is that you should definitely not assume that, that there's any significant privacy across any of them because they were not designed for professional use. You know what I mean? And so, and when we use it that way, there's going to be flaws.
1: Yeah, and I I, I do think from from observing how, kind of how people behave on Twitter versus Facebook, like what you get out of those platforms really is affected by the the actual limitations of the platform. Like the fact that Twitter puts limits on characters and the way that tweet, tweets get amplified with um, retweets and likes means that you kind of forces you to become. A bit polarizing or inflammatory in, in the way that you say things and so i, I wonder if you have you know you, you talked about um you know some of the pros and cons of using different platforms in is there a platform that you like better like do you enjoy being on twitter more than facebook or do you just use them um you know for very specific but different things
2: um if i want to know about something before anybody else twitter's the best you know that's news I can search the name of, you know, I can search if I want to know the score of a football game. You know, there's just so many different things that Twitter's fantastic for as far as news and, you know, but if I'm looking for accuracy, I don't know about that. You know, it's not a very accurate place. I think that I enjoy my discussions in the closed Facebook groups and whatever platform houses that concept in the future as we evolve over time because that discussion is essentially like a virtual surgeon's lounge. You know what I mean? You have, you know, for me it's great. I have the senior partner named John Thompson, who's just a fantastic guy, who from day one of my uh, academic career is directed me in the correct direction. But if somebody's practicing in the middle of nowhere and they're in solo practice, they don't have that. So when they have a tough case to be able to bounce it off people that they trust is fantastic. You do that same thing on Twitter. Number one, the risk of a HIPAA violation is up dramatically. Number two, there's some dummy that just gives you the worst advice ever and he's got, you know, 10,000 followers, you know I mean? versus if you're in these closed groups, you can really you can really have a nuanced conversation. And so the con- the way I termed it in the past was e-mentorship, but I think it's fantastic. I mean, you'll have Eric Weiss or Steve Wexner or Rick Billingham, all these people that are just giants in colorectal surgery, giving advice, real-time advice, quick turnaround advice on big cases and share their experiences you know, with the younger audience. And so to me, I, I enjoy the closed Facebook groups the most but Twitter has a completely unique value to me and I'm still on there every day. I can't help it. But I honestly think social media is an addiction and I'm clearly addicted. And so, uh, you know, I have to give that disclaimer.
0: It's interesting that, that, that you bring up that word, um, you know, addiction because it, it's uh, it's certainly possible, hey? Like, you know, there's a relatively popular recent movie on, on Netflix that I'm sure we've all seen Yes, <laughs> that, that tries to outline that. And it, it was really interesting to me watching that movie, you know, as to the software developers and the platform developers and where they were trying to come from. Like the guy that said, well, we wanted to make the world a, a more positive, fun place, so we developed the likes and the dislikes. We didn't mean it in terms of, you know, how it's evolved and what that really means, but... You're, you're right. I don't know if you have, if you have kids or. I, you know, Amir and I do, and I, I don't know when the the safe time to introduce this to them is, or how to manage that, or, or, or what. But <laughs> I can tell it's, you, it's uh, too
2: early because I, yeah. uh, <laughs> I learned I learned what's too early for them, but I don't know what the correct age is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? You know, I'm I'm curious. You've you've sort of uh, sprinkled your, your comments and your advice uh, around some of the pitfalls that that you see, um, whether they're defined as unprofessional or whether or not they're not. But what what are the most common Uh, issues the the pitfalls that that you see just in general in the surgical community and I'm also curious too to get your advice how how do you um, how do you interact with or how do you provide advice to maybe one of your colleagues or one of your partners or one of your buds that is in the surgical world that maybe is bordering on on trouble
2: that's interesting you know I guess I almost want to answer the second question first because I, I know what you mean by that. You know, like you sure. stumble upon a person that you care about doing something that you see as potentially dangerous. You bet. Uh I see that all the time. And I will admit that I occasionally reach out to people and go, Hey, just so you know, that could be interpreted uh incorrectly. Here's how it would be interpreted. And, you know, maybe you ought to change it or modify it, keeping in mind that once something's out there, it's out there. So you're not, you know what I mean? Um, I am guilty of that, but more from just helping people navigate away from rookie mistakes. It's usually the early, early adopt, you know, the people that are learning it. What I'm not in the habit of doing is policing content. You know, I, I don't feel like it's my job to kind of tell them you can't say this, or you should say this, you know, all I want to know, want them to know is like, do you know who can see this? Do you understand how it could be misinterpreted, or how it could be interpreted negatively, and do you understand what consequences can occur from that? And then, if they get that and they still want to do it, then I am—I don't intervene. Um, but I will say that I do that a decent amount. I, it's hard, you know. Sometimes there's like a really great message out there. And you read it, and you're like, "Well, you know, that's really powerful and uplifting." But you're clearly violating HIPAA, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you're like, "This is a bad idea," because you know, there's plenty of stories of doctors getting fired for tweeting stuff out and Facebook and stuff out that violates HIPAA. So no, I, I that's a tough uh, tightrope to walk. But as far as the the common pitfalls, there's different categories there. Like Some are more the philosophical pitfalls that I, I have to admit I, I get so boxy on. And then the more like the self-damaging ones. And so, you know, I think, you know, people forget their audience pretty often. So they'll share something personal or humorous. They think they're interacting with like a small friend network similar to Facebook. But in the, in the real world, everybody can see it. That's a super common pitfall. And when you do that... You know, you've provided this untarnished access to your personal life, and not everybody gets humor. I mean, people on Twitter have the worst sense of humor, like especially sarcasm, which does not translate. You know, so you got to be really careful with that. I think people uh, focus on fairness too much. Uh, They they forget that social media is kind of inherently an unfair place, and that they're the subject of court of public opinion and things are going to be misinterpreted they're not going to have background or nuance the reactions are going to be disproportionate if they focus on fairness they're going to make themselves miserable because it you know they have to have kind of a thick skin and they have to appreciate the sort of an unfair environment and then more soapboxy you know i think i think one of the big pitfalls of social media is Virtue signaling. you know, uh, people go on there, they want you to think they're a great person. They make it seem like they're really supporting a cause, but are they truly working towards actual change? You know, everybody's quick to demonstrate you know the behavior they think is desirable, similar to what you would see in a perfectly constructed Instagram or Facebook account but it's unclear how hard they're truly working behind the scenes to improve things like mm-hmm. diversity, equity, inclusion. That's the biggest topic, but there's a million topics that are similar that I just, I, I almost wonder if they're disingenuous a lot of the times, if that makes sense, you know, and then. Yeah, it really does. Um, one thing that I think, I think it's important to keep in mind is that we're all kind of subject and, 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 and at the mercy of this beast. And so, Another pitfall that I hate is cannibalism. You know, uh, people can be righteous about their agendas, but then they're quick to adopt the same behavior when they become outraged. You know, one example is I, even when somebody says something horrible online, I cannot stand it when the way that doctors punish that person is by going and leaving fake negative reviews on doctor rating websites because it's so cannibalistic because we all obsess over our own reviews, you know. And so, um that type of behavior just drives me nuts. But those are those are common pitfalls, I think. A lot of the early stuff, like "oops, I tweeted something I didn't mean to," that's just not happening anymore. With the you know the current literacy being higher than it was, people are all very aware. Like I used to, I used to literally get invited you know for for if i got invited to give a rectal cancer talk i would be shocked i'm much more likely to be asked to give a talk you know for visiting professorship on social media and i would give them all these shocking examples of people getting in trouble for bad online behavior and they didn't believe it oh it's just a tweet what's the big deal or it's just a post but now i think people are because so many celebrities and so many physicians as well have gotten in trouble for bad behavior, I think that that's no longer shocking to people. You know, and I think they understand that that's a, something that can happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a beautiful summary. And it's, you know, words to live by and words yeah. to, to, to think about. And I, I think at the end of the day, it takes me back to what you said earlier, which was the concept of benefit of doubt. You know, that's that's not only a good social media concept, it's a good concept in life, but by no means are you guaranteed that or even frequently to receive that by the by the greater collective. And I, I think you're right, that's important to to keep that filter up because you you know what could come your way.
1: You know, a slightly related but but different topic is the way that I think research has been impacted by social media. And and obviously you've been very heavily involved in ASCRS and, and DCR. Um, obviously you know that that many journals tweet out visual abstracts and uh, you know are, are really are trying to spark a lot of online discussion about their uh, publications. How do you think that has changed the way that we consume uh, and understand research?
2: well I think it's it's revolutionized it for sure like and I did spend three years as the social media editor for the journal of surgical education so I have made so many... You know, visual abstracts in my time, just watching that concept evolve, it's certainly become more sophisticated, and more useful than it was in the beginning, where it was just, you know, a couple of funny pictures that we found on the internet. But I think that research in social media is kind of a double edged sword. You know, on one hand, we're exposed to way more literature, way more data than we ever were before. And it's done in a matter that's very distilled and very digestible. You know, give me the take home points, you know, and I think that that's wonderful if you can trust the resource, you know, and, uh, and so I love that component of it. But on the other hand, we've also become very lazy because, you know, we read the conclusions and we retweet it, but I don't know how many people are going in, downloading the PDF and reading the methods section. You know what I mean? And, and that's a very big, sh- you know, important component of, of review that we were all taught to do in med school that we're kind of abandoning. I mean, the perfect example is people will send out the wrong link to an article, just be a mistake. And it'll still get retweeted like 20 times. Like these people are clear not clicking on the link, you know, because it, you know, uh, but accuracy is no, not guaranteed. There's no peer review, you know, I don't want to pick on Jenny McCarthy, but she's got like 1.4 million <laughs> followers on twitter and uh and all of her opinions about you know uh, vaccines and autism have a much bigger audience than mine you know uh kim kardashian's got 50 million followers right and so there's this disproportionate like loud voice that kind of outweighs the the pure the true expert you know opinion But the goods far outweigh the bads. I think there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration. I think that essentially what you described, you know, is a perfect way, you know, because, like, if I can't pay to fly to San Diego to go to the ACRS, I can capture it from home now. And that is something I could never do before. And so people can stay up to date a lot easier than they used to. And that's certainly... Great thing, and then obviously people can collaborate. There's tons of people that just met through social media, and that has led to research collaborations internationally. And that's something that never used to happen before.
1: Um, You know, lately uh, Twitter actually introduced this new function where they, um, before you can retweet something, sometimes I don't I don't know if it always works. Like I found when I've tried to retweet things, sometimes. This happens. I get this message and sometimes I don't, but sometimes you get this message that says, like, uh, you need to read this or consider reading this tweet before you retweet it out or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, just recently. Yeah, just recently. <laughs> do you think, do you think little tweaks like that to the platform are going to make a difference? Or do you think, uh, you know what? That's, I mean, most, most people have just spent, spent the whole time complaining about uh, the change in the format to the way that, uh, Retweets are done now, but I I wonder if if you see any ways going forward to actually improve that sort of aspect of things, where people are just retweeting things or talking about things without actually having read the 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 papers or actually done any doing any critical analysis.
2: I think certainly shifting the focus helps, because I mean, like we were very focused on like impressions. You know, when we first started following hashtags for this, the national meetings, look how many impressions we got. But the impressions are worthless, right? It's kind of like how good is the content? How reliable is the content? And so if you can educate people, and assume social media is going to be a component of surgical education moving forward and educate them during med school about how to critically evaluate these things. It's going to make a big difference because once they realize the percent chance something is inaccurate versus the chance that something is accurate – it changes the whole game. You know what I mean? And so I can't remember the number. I think I can find it on my computer when I'm sitting here talking to you guys. But the sheer number of links um, for Twitter that are to bots would blow your mind. Uh, let me see if I can find the, the data here. It only takes me a second if I do it correctly. Uh, 80% of all tweets from American adults come from the top 10% of tweeters. So the average user tweets two times a month. The top 10% tweet 138 times a month, right? And then 66% of tweeted links, so all these news and politics and science, 66% of tweeted links are made by suspected bots. And so it's just so inherently inaccurate that if you can train them to be skeptical, then that skepticism that, that served us well prior to social media will continue to serve us well in the new era.
0: Uh, that's that, that's such good advice. Uh, honestly, it's it's something to, to consider moving forward, probably forever. We we had an interesting podcast recently with an executive director of sort of the the General Surgery Society across the country in Canada, very much like the American College of Surgeons or our version of it, and and she she was fantastic, and she talked about the incredible change that we've seen with COVID with regard to meeting construction. And the reality, at least in her view, is that that entire industry would move at very least to hybrid meetings forever. And it echoes what what you said, you know, if you can't travel to a meeting, you can probably get so much of that content in the future from, from wherever you're working. How has social media been changed by this rapid past nine or 10 months of, of COVID? Have you seen, uh, anything that isn't particularly relevant to the surgical side of things?
2: It's a good question. I think that um, the activity overall has gone up dramatically. I just, I mean, may, and I don't have any science to prove that, but certainly people are more interactive online because <laughs> they have the time. That sounds horrible to say, but um, I think that it's going to be the the job of social media in the future to promote these meetings in a much more meaningful manner than it used to be. In the past, you just kind of say, oh, today Dr. Johnson's talking about this, but now you got to bring home the salient points, drive them to the correct link so that they can actually watch it and get the content. The first society I think to be successful at that was the ACS, American College of Surgeons. Their, their uh, meeting that they just had a couple months ago where they yeah. made their their interactive platform was so sophisticated compared to what I've seen in the past that I just thought to myself this is definitely it's not social media but it's social media's job to navigate people to the correct place you know and I think that that has become a new uh, essential uh, thing for us and so We'll see what it looks like. I I don't think the in-person meetings are going away. I think that if you looked at the impressions and the engagement in that meeting, the biggest meeting we have for surgery in the United States every year, people were super engaged for a couple days and then just sort of tapered off because they realized, oh, I can watch this anytime. So I don't have to do it now. And then guaranteed most of them did not end up watching (laughs) the videos they're supposed to. Because, And then the other thing is you don't have a captive audience. I wasn't in. San Francisco. I believe that's where I was supposed to be. No, I can't remember. But as a result, I had cases. And so I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't have the ability to spend all day listening to me. I'm certainly not going to take days off to do it if I'm not traveling, you know. And so that the lack of a captive audience, the lack of engagement is going to be a real issue. And then I I don't know about you guys, but I mean, how much time do you spend in the actual uh, uh, lecture hall and how much time do you spend? In meetings or making connections and networking, there's such a social component to these national meetings. It's, ver- you know, so cathartic for people that are working super hard. And, and I just can't imagine that that can be duplicated virtually, but we'll see. Cause, you know, who knows? Who knows what the future holds? But certainly the hybrid concept's not going away. And I'm glad it's not because it's just going to make our uh, meetings more sophisticated
0: yeah more sophisticated, more more engaged, I, I totally agree. Sean, the last thing we wanted to talk to you about um, is the concept of online reputation management. And I, I know you had said that this is a huge topic and worthy of a podcast in itself, but can for the listeners maybe that don't know about it, can you frame that concept and and chat about it a little bit?
2: Yeah, no, I can. i um, I think it's super important. so that it was sort of the natural evolution of me looking at this stuff because i I, I realize social media is great for people to interact with each other, but you know how do patients interact? with doctors and societies and in their hospitals and so when I think of online reputation management I think of basically you know patients are going online to search health related topics and they're googling you and so we kind of need to know what to see when they get there and we kind of need to be able to manipulate it to make sure they're getting accurate information because of just how inaccurate you know everything is and so the first thing you think about is physician rating websites, and I can't speak to Canada, but in the United States, there's just an innumerable number of these vitals, health grades, rateMDs.com, where patients can go to rate their doctor and rate their experience, and the utilization of this is very high for patients. In the old days, they got referred by their primary doctor, to somebody that the doc trusted, and that's how they found patients, but now it's a consumer-driven market. So they're going online, they're researching the doctor, and that's how they're choosing. And to be honest, it's big business. The problem with these websites is they're very inaccurate. Uh, they're, it's impossible to opt out. So you can't go on there and go, I just don't want to be on your website because they, they won't do it for you. And they're much more negative than what real life is like. And so there's a sample bias there. And so... I think that the reality is for on the reputation management, it's sort of the doctor's obligation to kind of go on there and find out what people can see and how they can drive people in the correct direction. And so, I mean, without diving into which details, like I said, it's a big talk, but you know, but you know, Google, you know, old research shows that 91% of people on Google don't go past page one. And 50% don't even go past the first day results on page one. So you don't have to get rid of bad content. You just have to elevate good content. And by doing that, you're sort of driving these third-party rating websites and driving negative information further down the search and, and between the patients and, and their Google search. And so, what that means, you know, to a practicing surgeon is, you know, talking to website designers for your institution and asking them if they have algorithms to make sure that when you Google Sean Langenfeld, the Nebraska Medicine's website is the first thing that pops up. If they tell you they don't have their algorithms, you need to get new website designers because they absolutely do have those algorithms and uh, and they're effective. And then, you know, making accounts on social media, uh, ResearchGate, Doximity, Twitter, that usually fills up the top of your search and, and – in and that certainly kind of we talked about you know so like low hanging fruit or whatever and that's an example of that but the, but the more i guess the more sustainable solution which i think a lot of people in the united states have adopted is the concept of using your own institutional website to publish the ratings that patients are giving you via press gainy scores and electronic questionnaires it sounds intimidating at first but what you find out pretty quick is that those Scores are invariably higher than what you'll find on third-party websites and they're more representative of your actual patient population because each patient gets to vote once and they're a verified patient. And so we do that at the University of Nebraska. And I, You know, people listening to the podcast, feel free to Google me. Um, Just don't leave anything negative, you know, positive feedback only. But, the uh, you know, on there, not only are the ratings more positive, they're also more representative. And so you, if you do get a negative rating, which I've gotten before, you take it to heart, you know, so I... I have mostly positive reviews, but if you go back far enough, you'll see that one thing that I've gotten dinged with intermittently over the years is patients feel that I rush them. They feel rushed in the clinic. And I see sometimes 20 to 25 people in an afternoon and I understand that and it's real. And so I've worked really hard over several years trying to actually improve their experience. So they don't feel as rushed that they got all their questions answered. And I think that that's really helped quite a bit, you know, and, The benefit of doing all this is depending on your practice environment. You know, some people go, you know, one thing, one problem we had locally was that our gastroenterologists went through some transitions where they were kind of understaffed and they weren't scoping. And so if they're not scoping, they're not finding colon cancers, right? And diverticulitis. And so as a result, a lot of people around me kind of had a slump, but my clinic stayed full. And I think it's because I had a pretty strong online reputation and people were finding me through Google. And so it kind of makes you slump proof. And so I I think that the concept, like you said, it's an hour long talk, but certainly there's some places people can go for more information and just understanding that it's a priority is the first
1: step, if that makes sense. One thing I really like about the way that you framed that is that you actually took seriously some of the the comments that you saw as recurring because i think a lot of people just say oh well you know those are online ratings they don't hold any value or any merit but you actually like took those comments and, and ratings to heart like do you think there is some value and some uh, actual uh, positive or or constructive things that you can actually glean from from uh, googling yourself and seeing what people have have uh, commented or, or written about you.
2: Yeah, it's so tough. I mean, have you guys googled yourselves before? I don't I don't know. I I've, I've done it. I do it periodically. And it sounds like narcissism, but I do it cuz I want, you know, I think it's self-preservation.
1: You can't help it. Is,
2: <laughs> but if you google yourself, especially if you have a relatively unique name, I mean, you have to have thick skin cuz you're going to find negative stuff on there. I mean, that's the reality. If you're seeing 40-50 patients a week, not everybody's happy. And they love having this power of getting back at you and they can do it a million times. They can leave 10 bad ratings if they want, you know, but I, but yeah, there's, there's value in it, man. I think that, you know, if the patient had negative experience and you probably have something you could improve upon, the problem with the third party websites is it's sort of it's unilateral. They can sit there and rate you a hundred times negatively. It's anonymous. You can't respond. Even if you think you know who it is, if you respond, you could end up violating HIPAA. Right. And um, it's, it's, Huge sample error, and you know, and so I just think that there's so many flaws in that that the flaws far outweigh the rewards. But if you can actually have a trustworthy system for reviews, I think that is all about. First of all, it's about patient experience, improving the patient experience, and second of all, it's about improvement, self improvement, because you can learn a lot from that. I certainly realized I was moving too quick, you know. and you know just something along the lines it, it stings though the first time you read like the doctor just always seems like he's in a hurry you know it it, it hurts because you're like no i mean i feel like i do so so well but the reality is that how i'm perceived or how i perceive myself is not how the patient sees it so it's a super super valuable information especially now that we're kind of looking at all these patient reported outcomes and those are becoming a much bigger component of what we find to be important
1: dr langenfeld it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the, the podcast and uh, I'm sure Dr. Ball and I could sit and, and talk to you and for another hour. There's so many other things that we could we could talk to you about. Uh, in closing, uh, one of the questions that we always ask all of our guests uh, is, if you could go back in time, especially now having seen kind of maybe the unexpected ways your, your career has gone, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a trainee, what would that advice be?
2: <laughs> uh Maybe put down the protein shakes because it's all going to turn to fat after your kids are born. I think I would have told myself that. <laughs> um, so true. I think I think I think that one thing that I learned is that there's no shortcuts, and that hard work pays off. If that makes sense, and so I think that realizing that everybody around you is talented, and everybody around you. Has gifts, and if you really want to separate yourself, that the only secret is hard work. I I think I figured that out early on, but confirmed it over time. And then (laughs) there was a let's see, you know, quotes. What uh, Charles de Gaulle, and I'm probably misquoting this, so I apologize. Um, if I am, but he basically said like the cemeteries are filled with indispensable men, you know, uh, and certainly that's a dated uh, sexist way of putting it. But the the point being is like you just think, oh, if I go home, the, the, the this place is going to fall apart, you know, and no, I, I can go home and spend some time with my kids and, you know, I'm not that irreplaceable, you know, and, and I shouldn't treat the job like it is that, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so I think that that was something, I mean, I'm only, I'm nine years into practice now, so I'm still very early on in my career, but I'm already regretting some of these, uh, some of the time I've spent in the office after hours just doing academic work because my, my CV looks great, but uh, you know, I probably could have spent more time with the kiddos and uh, thankfully they're still young enough where I can make it up for. To them, but uh, but the reality is, is that it just becomes progressively evident over time that work is not everything.
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback. So feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.